You are listening to the sassiest podcast in the world. Born in the Nordics, democratizing B2B SaaS knowledge everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is David Heinemeyer Hansen, the co-owner and CTO of 37 Signals. You are helpless unless you have the Amazon system administrators running around behind the scenes like a mechanical Turk, uh, pretending that there's some big oracle of, of technical advancement here, when in fact it's just a bunch of sysadmins running around and doing the same stuff that you could pay a sysadmin to do. All right, we are back with another episode of the Sassiest Podcast, and today we are a little bit excited because we started selling tickets for Sassiest 2024 just this week. So check it out at sassiest2024.com and um, sign up. It's the early bird tickets starting selling right now. Definitely. This is the best uh, price value you would get ever, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. And, and speaking about uh, uh, value, obviously, there's, there's a couple of things that we're working on as well in parallel with the um, conference here. We're opening up again uh, for applications to the CEO network and the executive network. So if you are a CEO or VP level and higher of an organization that has minimum 2 million euros in ARR, you may go to sassiest.com and send in your application. It's a fantastic network where you will get the possibility to spar with like-minded people in similar positions in order for all of you guys to grow together. Absolutely. And today we're going to be a little bit provocative. Oh, well, maybe not us, but the guest of the hour. So let's go into an interview with a very special person. Today, we are super excited to have David Heinemeyer Hansson, the co-owner and CTO of 37Signals, here as a guest in the Sassiest podcast. Wow. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's really exciting to have you here. And like, I, I don't know if I'm excited or a little bit nervous because- I'm scared. You've been <laughs> summoned upon. Like you, you, You've had some, some strong statements lately. And we had a bunch of people in our community said like, okay, we got to ask David, what the heck does he mean by this? That, so a little bit spoiler alert here. But it's a little bit of a sensitive and delicate topic we're going to address today. At least I think so. Yeah. But before we, we sort of go into that, David, for the ones that don't know you, who are you? Sure. So I am, um, as you said, the co-owner and CTO of 37Signals. It is a predominantly a SaaS company, has been a SaaS company for better part of uh, 20 years. We were part of that original um, Phoenix rising out of the dot-com bust back in 2003. We started working on Basecamp.com, uh, our project management tool, one of those uh, evergreen SaaS tools that were around even before the term SaaS was invented. Right. And as part of developing Basecamp, uh, as I did as the technical person together with Jason Fried, my business partner on design, and two other people, tiny company at the time for folks. I created Ruby on Rails, which is a web development framework that's been used by everyone from GitHub to Shopify. Uh, Twitter got started on it, Airbnb, a bunch of other uh, high-flying SaaS companies. Is that still a thing? Sorry. Uh, is that still a thing, Ruby on Rails? Is, is that the hottest thing on the, on the block still? Oh, absolutely. We have uh, had a bit of a 
I don't know. Renaissance is how I termed it. We just had a Rails World conference in Amsterdam with 750 people that sold out in 45 minutes. Nice. Um, uh, about a month ago. Huge excitement in that uh, community for, for all the things that are changing. And I think the entire industry, the SaaS industry, is turning towards the ethos of what we're trying to do with Ruby on Rails. There's a much bigger emphasis now on cost, uh, much bigger emphasis now on productivity. There's no longer endless, unlimited money that people can raise. Um, so <laughs> most SaaS companies, most SaaS startups have to be far more judicial with their use of funds. They have to extend their runway. They have to do all these things. And that's exactly where Ruby on Rails fits in perfectly. We have this uh, motto on the homepage uh, from Hello World to IPO. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not every company is going to IPO like uh, Shopify that's been worth over $100 billion built entirely on Ruby and Rails. Mm. But it allows you to go that entire distance from single developer. This is one of the things I'm super passionate about, creating tools that are so powerful that one developer can build competitive SaaS solutions. Gotcha. So are you still driving the development of Ruby on Rails or is it an open source thing or, or what is it? Well, it's both of those things. So yeah, I am still very actively involved. It's been uh, 20 years is what we celebrated at the Rails World Conference in Amsterdam uh, just a few months ago. I started working on 2003 and I never stopped Okay. Um, because I've had to use Ruby on Rails, not had to, I've wanted to, I'd love to <laughs> use Ruby on Rails for everything that we built over the past 20 years. But there's also a huge open source community. Uh, almost 7,000 people have code contributions in the Ruby on Rails framework. And wow. tens of thousands of people more than that have, um, have put work into documentation and other things. And there are literally millions of applications built with Ruby on Rails. So an incredibly long, illustrious uh, history and very bright future. We formed a Rails foundation just last year where some of the major companies, the likes of GitHub and Shopify, our own, and a bunch of other companies got together and said, like, you know what? We want to make sure that Ruby on Rails is around and prospering for the next 20 years. Yeah. We're there's some huge companies. There's some small companies. Um, this is what we're building. And I think uh, the time is just right for these things. But Love it. Love it. I mean, I, I, I could feel and sense the passion here. So passionate <laughs> about SaaS, <laughs> passionate about Ruby on Rails. We've also heard a rumor that you're passionate about email cars, not email. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thomas, yeah, too you. soon. Too soon. Okay. Too soon. Okay. Okay. T tell us about this, this, this car rumor we've heard. Yeah. I particularly love racing fast cars. I just came home actually late last night from a 24 hour trip to Bahrain where we had the last race of the FIA World Endurance Championship race. We finished third on the podium in our LMP2 class. So I'm incredibly wow, congratulations. excited about that. Yes. Thank you very much. I've been racing, uh, for about 15 years, I've gone to the 24 hours of Le Mans 10 times, won the race, um, just absolutely love fast cars, love endurance racing, love the teamwork, love the optimization challenge, love working with engineers on eking out those little advantages on a car. It's very much to me like a small startup that comes together for a season and competes together for some high prices, have audacious goals, but constantly have to follow up like who's working in what seat, what's, what's good, what's not. And you get the feedback from the market, if you will. Every single time you go around a lap, that's about two minutes at most tracks, you get an exact verdict of whether you did worse or you did uh, better, which is just a lot of fun. I, I got to ask, like, what car did you race with now? 
I'm racing in what's called the LMP2 class that stands for Le Mans prototypes. These are close top uh, cars that um, look like sort of smaller-ish normal cars, but are closely related to the open wheel stuff like you would see in a Formula One car. It's the same kind of technology. Um, gotcha. But I've also raced in, um, in in more traditional GT machinery. In, in 2014, I won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in my class in an Aston Martin. I've raced with Porsches. Uh, I will raise anything pretty much that uh, <laughs> gives me access to, to these kind of tracks. I will ask you one, one more thing. that I've been wondering this forever. So when you do this uh, this type of racing that takes forever, yes. like it's not a five-minute exercise, you, you drive for hours, like... How do you uh, uh, hydrate and do you ever feel maybe that like, oh, I need to stop for a bio break? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So at this race we just had in Bahrain, it was incredibly hot. We were racing in the desert in the middle of the day. I think it was upwards of almost 40 degrees Celsius in the cockpit as I was in there. And I had to be in there for an hour and 20 minutes in one go, 44 laps or something like that. Yeah. It was a serious physical challenge. We have actually specially designed helmets that have uh, drink tubes. Okay. So we can get water straight into, into the helmet but even so it is really exhausting i stumbled out of the car and i just laid flat on the <laughs> garage floor for about five minutes before i got up again and then i jumped straight into an ice bath like a literal <laughs> bath with ice wow. cubes floating around in it to cool off because i only had a 40 minute break before i had to get into the car again so wow that physical challenge is a, is a huge part of what i find fun about endurance uh, racing now this was an eight hour race it's even more so at the 24 hours of le mans someone comes along wakes you up at 2 30 in the morning and go like all right, time. time to get into the car. <laughs> time to sit in there for, for two hours again going uh, uh, 340 kilometers down the Mulsanne Strait. So that that is a huge part of it because that part is quite different from programming. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities to running a startup, running a company, programming when you deal with the optimization of a race car. But physically, there's not a whole lot of a resemblance between sitting in front of a desk and, and being in a race car. Yeah, and back to the desk here. You mentioned that, uh, you mentioned Basecamp, you mentioned Ruby on Rails. What, uh, what else do you guys do at 37 Signals? So our second major product that we have right now is called hey.com, H-E-Y.com. It's a new email service that also had a sort of audacious goal, which was to take on the behemoth of our industry, Gmail, which has a very fine product um, that they give away for free, quote unquote free. You have to pay with your privacy and your attention and your data and all these other things, but you don't pay any money for it. And we come along as a SaaS company and say, do you know what? We think we have better ideas for how to do email and we would like to sell you a product that costs $100 a year to use. That was pretty much a um, audacious uh, goal we had, and, and the kind of audacious goals that I think sometimes you have to warm up to. And for us, it took almost 20 years to warm up to the idea that we should take on Google head-on with Gmail with a paid email product. Mm. And we did that. We launched that in 2020. And we thought like, oh, here we're going to go up against the great Goliath of Google. And then it turned out that before we could meet that boss, we had to beat another boss, which was Apple, who um, tried to kick us out of the App Store back in 2020, didn't want to allow us to um, have a a client app in there because we weren't interested in giving 30% of our revenues to right. Apple in in an app <laughs> payment. So we had an epic two-week battle with them that was all over the press. And um, it was one of those huge gambles where if Apple had won, which basically just meant that they would have kicked us out of the App Store, the business would have been dead. Right. You cannot make a commercially viable email client today if you don't have a great iOS 
app there. But thankfully, we managed to create enough pressure to to create space for us to get a, a bit of a special deal. They changed the rules after the fight with uh, with us, and we lived to um, fight another day. And we had over 300,000 people sign up for the service in three weeks because of the incredible exposure Apple gave us by trying to squash us. So wow. that was... Um, that was a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> we have a saying here, at least in, in our local office here at Sassiest, nobody remembers a coward. I feel that like that definitely resonates with you guys, I think. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where um, we've been around now for long enough. And I have worked in this both industry and specifically with 37 Singles for long enough that I've priced it all in. Mm. So I've priced all the outcomes in. I've priced in the fact that, you know what, we could have gone out of business. We could go out of business tomorrow. There could be some catastrophe happening at the company. Or simply we could go out of business over five years because for whatever reason the market erodes, right? I think when you have that acceptance of your end faith, none of us is going to make it out of this life alive. Um it becomes easier to do what you think is right. And I think this is one of the things that's been driving us very strongly for a very long time. Do you know what? We're going to do what's right if we believe it is so. And damn be the consequences to some extent. Right. Now, this is the, what drove the fight with Apple. This was why it was such a huge story because no one says no to Apple. Yeah. When Apple shows up and, and tells most companies to dance, they they ask, "What uh, do you want a waltz or do you want a tango?" Yeah. Right? Like, what tune? What tune do you want me to dance to? Exactly. There's not really a lot of optionality in that relationship. Right. Which is also, I think, why Apple was so surprised when we said no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay you thirty percent of all our revenues. Um, we're going to publish this app and you're going to let us. And that more or less ended up being what it what it was. So I think this is one of the things that we've tried to just drive our business with because we can. This is the other factor that's unique to some extent about 37 Signals is that we don't have investors telling us what to do. Right. We don't have a board of directors. We don't have anyone to prevent us um, from doing the things we want to do. We don't have to ask anyone for permission. Mm. And I think with that comes some sort of obligation that we should do the kind of things that others would have to ask permission for and would probably get no. Yeah. If we had had a board of directors, if we had had a, a, a bunch of investors, they would every single one of them would have told us, do not fight Apple. Right. Fold, fold. And maybe they should have said, David, stay in the cloud. Because <laughs> here's where we want to go next, right? Because we, you have written an article that you... You wanted to take hay out of the cloud. And uh, why is that? Yes. Yeah, so, what, what does that even mean? As I said, we've been around for 20 years. We've been around for before the cloud existed. But I've not been an opponent of the cloud. When the cloud first emerged, especially with Amazon S3, the file storage service, I was really excited. Storing petabytes of data is a hard problem, and Amazon made it really easy. So, as Amazon, it particularly, then being the first mover, expanded their servers and EC2 with computing and all these other things, I thought, this is great. This is true progress. We're going to end up not having to deal with physical hardware anymore. It's going to be easier. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be faster. Remember those three words. So when we started working with the cloud, going all in, first converting some applications, and then the crescendo, launching Hey.com as a native cloud application. Hey.com has never lived or did never live on our own hardware before we launched it. Right. We went in with that ethos. We bought the marketing spiel. This is going to be easier, faster, and cheaper. Hmm. After a few years, about five years, trying to make that true, much the same as anyone else in this industry have done, we realized it is not easier. 
That means we were never able to run a smaller operations team just because we ran things in the cloud versus owning our own hardware. It was absolutely not cheaper. It was dramatically, draconingly, obscenely more expensive. Um, we accounted for our entire cloud budget last year in 2022. We spent $3.2 million on cloud services, which is just disproportionate to, to what that should be. So those two factors already kind of had me had me irked. And then I think we finally just started diving into the bills uh, sometimes last year. Combine that with this eerie sense that I had that, do you know what? This is not good for the internet. I own my entire career. I own my company. I own my fortune to the architecture of the, of, of the internet. A distributed, no permissions setup where if you can connect a machine to an IP address, boom, you're in business, literally. Mm. And what the cloud has done is to uh, centralize so much of computing into the hands of just a few hyperscalers. When Amazon's US East 1 region, which is the original region, goes down, seemingly a third of the internet is offline. Do you know what? That's a flawed design. That is not the design ARPA intended when the internet was first conceived. Not the internet I fell in love with. The internet I fell in love with was the permissionless internet where we could launch Basecamp back in 2004. Didn't have to ask anyone for permission. Didn't have to ask anyone for clearance. Um, that's what I wanted. So all these factors came together, us realizing that the sales pitch of cloud was untrue, that only one out of the three factors was actually real. It is true that the cloud is faster. If you need 100 or 1,000 servers in five minutes, nothing beats the cloud. The cloud is incredible at spinning up an, uh, a massive servers. But do you know how often I need that? Never. Mm. That's about <laughs> how often I need that. How often do I need to go from 100 servers to 500 servers? That's just not something that happens most of the time for most SaaS. Mm. Now, not that it can't happen for some SaaS. We, for example, with Hey.com had a burst right away. And to some extent, I was grateful for being on the cloud for that small window. But after that, it hasn't been so. Basecamp, for example, is a very stable business. We can predict our growth right. 18 months in advance. Almost. Mm. Um, that's the magic of SaaS. This is why everyone is doing SaaS. That SaaS recurring subscription billing is very predictable, especially when it comes to B2B. So if you are in that domain, you don't really benefit from the opportunity of suddenly adding a thousand servers, but you absolutely pay for the privilege of being able to do that. And you pay obscene rates. So we did the full calculations. We spent $3.2 million last year, and our conservative estimate is that our exit of the cloud is going to save us $1.5 million per year. Wow. Mm. Will you have to employ a lot of new people with other type of skills? Do you need to buy in hardware? Do you need to set up all these structures, you know, get certified on security stuff uh, and all of that? No, no, and no. Okay. So we're keeping exactly the same team. We are out of the cloud now, by the way. Okay. So we started our, our cloud exit in earnest in January. And by six months later, we had pulled seven applications out of the cloud. We have a long history of lots of different applications, but that included Hey.com, our major service. We pulled all of it out of the cloud. We are fully out of the cloud. Our, our bills are racing towards zero. We had a bunch of reserved instances. The only way to make the cloud affordable is to actually ironically prepay for a year or more in advance. So that's what we've done. But we're all out now. We've not had to increase our operations team. This was one of those main tenets of the pitch. Oh, this is going to be easier. No, no, no. It's not easier. Once you reach a certain threshold. Again, 
I caveat this by saying, if you're a startup, that means you don't have a validated business plan. You have not found product market fit. You don't know whether you're going to be this big or 100 times bigger tomorrow. The cloud does make sense. Mm. Don't go out and buy a bunch of hardware as the first thing you do when you land that series um, or seed round or something else like that. That's a waste of money. Mm. But as soon as you become a quote unquote real business, as soon as you're as soon as you actually have real revenue and you have real profits and the costs actually matter, it makes a tremendous sense to do the analysis of whether cloud is too expensive. And I think as soon as you see bills being in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or certainly in the millions of dollars, there's just a tremendous window for savings on there. And um, we waited too long. I bought the marketing spiel of the cloud, full hook, line, and sinker. It's going to be easier, faster, better. Anyone who runs their own uh, stuff, they're going to be outdated. That's what dinosaurs do. That's what we did in the in the 2000s, blah, 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 blah. And I realized, you know what? It all It's all bullshit. It really is. And hats off and clap, clap, clap <laughs> to the people who work marketing at the cloud services. Probably A-plus performance of yeah. conceding an entire industry into thinking that it's too hard hard to run your own servers. What a ludicrous proposition. We literally just like five, seven years ago, every single SaaS business ran their own servers or leased their own servers. But David, I must ask you, I mean, you guys are obviously, you know, geniuses. You, you create Ruby on Rails, you you take on Apple and everything. Could, could any company do this that has reached a certain size? And what are the concrete steps of doing this? You're in the cloud, you want to get out of the cloud. What are the three, five, ten different steps uh, you need to do and where are the potential you know, traps that you should avoid? Yeah, so first of all, this is absolutely accessible to, to anyone who've reached that scale of this is now expenses that matter. That's usually where I triggered, right? If you're a small company and you're spending 5,000, 10,000 a month, who cares? Yeah. You're not even using a, uh, you don't even have a budget that's large enough for a single operations people, person. I think once you get into this idea that you're spending so much on cloud that you could pay salaries of several people to operate it. That's when it starts being interesting. Then I'd say, it's not nearly as hard as people, as the cloud people, not people, as the cloud people would leave you to believe. All of the, the sort of emphasis here from cloud is, it's so hard. We're the geniuses. Oh, and by the way, we hire 10,000 such geniuses and they happen to work at Amazon. What? No, they're not. They're not geniuses. They use the same open source tooling that the rest of us do. In fact, there's basically no magic sauce in any of the cloud stuff that we've been using that isn't just this thin layer of, uh, of folks working on top of databases. We use the MySQL database. That's what you can use in the cloud. If you use the Postgres database, that's what you can use in the cloud. You use Redis, you use Nginx, you use Ruby on Rails, you use all of these tools, all the quote-unquote hard work is being done in the open source world. That open source world is as accessible to you, perhaps even more accessible to you, if you run your own hardware. Now, it is fair to say that the cloud has um, ushered in some technological advantages that are very important. Virtualizations and containerizations are the two big pillars of the cloud. And those big pillars, they come with you to on-prem, right. as we say, on-premise, your own hardware. And I think that's what the big shock was for us. We spent years getting into the cloud so I thought initially it's going to take years to get out of the cloud. It turned out not to be so at all. After we kicked off our exit in January, we had migrated the first application out of the cloud in six weeks. Wow. And that included building some bespoke tooling that we were interested in having for our scenario. We built a, a small tool on top of something called Docker, which is a containerization framework um, called Kamal. 
It's kamal-deploy.org, which is basically a tool where you can take one of those applications you used to put in the cloud and then put it on your own hardware. It is much, much easier than people think. Now, that doesn't mean it's trivial. It doesn't mean you don't have to have expertise or competency, but you also have to have that to run in the cloud. That's the big fallacy, that once you reach a certain scale, once you have a complicated cloud setup, that's really hard too. Right. So there's a slight difference. There's, I would say, 90% overlap between the skills you need to securely, productively run an application in the cloud and do so on-premise. And then there's about 10% that you have to learn that's new. Okay, so... Uh, I think it all makes sense even to me as a commercial guy. Like you, you save a lot of money. The, the 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 knowledge and skill set is out there. It's available. The technology is out there. I'm curious when you decided to make this move, you had to obviously tell your customer base, "Hey, we're we're moving you know the service out of Amazon and it's going to be you know self hosted or whatever you guys call it here." Like, what was the reaction to that? How did the customer base respond to this? Well, we didn't tell the customer base. <laughs> Just like we don't tell the customer. Well, we told the customer base in the sense that we were celebrating that we were going out of the cloud, but not in more of the sense that we tell the customer base whether we run one database engine or another. Does, do our customers care? Yeah, the reason why I ask is that, you know, depending on what type of customers you have, like, uh, and again, I'm not qualified enough to speak about this, but some of them have bought the, the, the notion and the concept of, you know, if my vendor is with one of these three big players, there's a level of security and there's yeah. levels of backups yes. and right. service is guaranteed and so on. All that, that then. All that delusional junk. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Delusional <laughs> junk. Um, because it is delusional. There's so little of that that actually has an essence of truth in it because it's not like we were running th or we're moving out to run things in a shed up in the Swedish highlands, right? <laughs> there are wonderful um, $100 million facilities built by billion-dollar companies all around the world that do exactly this, provide you access to a hyper-secure data center facility where you can run your own hardware inside of that. So this is all talking points that I think cloud aficionados, or, or not even cloud aficionados, cloud marketing people have been so chef's kiss successful at indoctrinating, especially CIOs in big companies who don't know shit about tech, <laughs> right? They go like, oh, um, here's another person in a suit telling me it would be dangerous if I didn't buy from them. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the, the fact is, first of all, we're in a little bit of a unique situation since we don't have a lot of enterprise customers. Our services cost a maximum of $300 a month. Yeah. If you're selling enterprise SaaS that might run into the tens of thousands a month or whatever, million dollar contracts, there is a different relationship. You have more of a contract negotiation and uh, due diligence and so on. When you sell to the SMB market as we do, there's not that. Mm. There's not a small business in the world that gives two hoots where our database is run, what, um, whether it's in AWS or, or otherwise. And I think then the reality, the proof is in the pudding. We moved out months and months ago. We have as good, if not better, uptime than we did in the cloud. The irony is that just because you're running with Amazon does not mean you're constantly available. Um, it is actually really difficult to run these hyperscalers, and it means that they quite occasionally make mistakes that take out tons of customers at the same time. 
And it basically offers you um, just safety in numbers. Oh, well, it wasn't our problem. I mean, it was Amazon, which, do you know what? Our customers don't give a hoot. Mm. If, if Basecamp is down, I can't just blame Amazon. Right. I think that works good at the CIO level. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, all our competitors at, in the Fortune uh, 1000 here, they're also down because they're also all in US East one. So I at least can't get fired for buying IBM. Right. Um, Yes, I, I will agree. That is real. I, it, it's worth accepting that that perception of um, integrity, equality, or uptime is, is, is a thing that's there. It's not connected to reality, but it is a thing that's there. So if you are a salesperson and you have to close a deal, I could totally see, hey, my enterprise customers are asking for this. Can we just give them that? Right. Whether it, it matters, whether it's real – um, it perhaps isn't so big of a deal, which is also why I'm so loud <laughs> about this topic. Because, I mean, I have not posted about anything on LinkedIn that has gotten as much attention as this. The original post about our exit got over 5 million views on LinkedIn. Uh, just massive interest yeah. because it was a, a crack in the marketing dome of this. And like the water is starting to come out when people go like, wait, what? It's not actually true that um, you're going to be totally insecure and going to go down and not have backups if you're not in Amazon. Well, why would we pay three, four, ten times as much to be in the cloud then that we could be paying if we ran our own hardware? Yeah. And I think those conversations are really powerful. So ha have you hired some lifeguards uh, that <laughs> goes around with you now when you walk the... <laughs> In Silicon Valley, or it's 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 funny because um I like I've actually heard that quip from a lot of people, which gives you some uh, idea of the vested interests here. This is absolutely a multi multi billion dollar industry that is predicated in part on the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt being spread by the cloud marketing departments. That you can't do this without us. You are helpless unless you have the Amazon system administrators running around behind the scenes like a mechanical Turk, uh, pretending that there's some big oracle of, of technical advancement here. When in fact, it's just a bunch of sysadmins running around and doing the same stuff that you could pay a sysadmin to do. Um, so I think that mirage, that um, um, illusion that there's just some fundamental change here that uh, normal companies can't actually acquire the expertise to run their own computers, it's just bizarre. To me, it's kind of like um, uh, you look at the pyramids and we still go like, oh, I wonder how they built the pyramids. Oh, these stones are really heavy. They had to get them from far away. And we're talking about system administration that existed seven years ago like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wonder how they built these services. I wonder how they operated them on the internet. What are you talking about? These people are still alive. You can ask them. Yeah. They're like in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> but when you did this, wasn't there anything that uh, took you by surprise that this was harder than we thought it was or something like that? Um... I was really surprised, actually, and I mean, this sounds bullish as like I'm selling something, but like the truth is I'm not selling anything. I don't care whether you run in the cloud or not. The, what I care about is getting better opportunities and better odds for startups. Right. I do care about that, but I, I don't stand to economically benefit from whichever way the winds blow in this discussion. So I'll answer it as quickly as I can. Do you know what I was shockingly surprised about was how easy it was, <laughs> how little effort it took compared to what I thought it would take? Because as I said, we spent years 
modifying our applications to be able to run in the cloud for the first place. It was a big transition from going the old pet servers, as we used to call them, mm. where you have a, a little server. It even maybe has a name. Our first servers were named after mountain ranges. They were very unique and bespoke, and there were uh, system administrators that would pet these servers and caress them and care for them. Now you deal with cattle servers. That is, you don't care what one box is called or the other box. They're all the same, right? Yeah. All that technology that comes out of the cloud that or was promoted with the cloud, containerization and virtualization has made this so easy. This idea that whether I own the hardware or they own the hardware, it's not actually the chief difficulty in the technical challenge. It's a finance challenge. Do you want to buy or do you want to rent? And do you want to rent if you're paying so much for rent that you could buy in like four months worth of rent? All right, I get it. You said that this was easier than you thought, but what was hardest? You need to say something. Um, we, I did build some technology on top. We built this Kamal tool to be able to do our deployment the way we wanted to do it. Um, that took some effort. And I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, so I thought I could do that in a weekend. It ended up taking two months instead of a weekend. But um, it was such a small sacrifice. So does everyone need to build their own Kamal thing to get it to work good? Absolutely not. They can use yours. First of all, they can use mine. It's open source. <laughs> it's free. But there's also there's a bunch of other tools out here. I built Kamal because that's what we do. Okay. We like to build our own tools. If I have to work with something on a daily basis, I need it to be perfect for me. That's why we build Ruby on Rails. That's why we build all these other things. But most companies, most tech people, they don't have this uh, mental illness that I suffer from. <laughs> um, they can just use other people's tools straight out of the box and be happy with it. Kamal is one of those tools. But there's a bunch of different options out there. They're all quite good. Um, and again, as I said, I think this is far, far easier than people believe it to be. Are you building a SaaS business? Achieving ISO 27001 or SOC 2 compliance can help you win bigger deals, enter new markets, and deepen trust with your customers. But it can also cost you real time and money. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work needed to get and stay compliant. Get audit ready in weeks instead of months and save up to 85% of associated cost. Over 6,000 fast growing companies use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. Sassiest listeners get 20% off Vanta at Vanta.com slash Sassiest. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash Sassiest. So I have a couple of questions, and I think they're uh, to a large extent influenced by what we've seen in our community, because we, we let them know a little bit. We, we're going to have David on here, and we're going to interview this. And I, I think there's a couple of things that you've touched upon a little bit. I just want to... I don't know if I dare to challenge you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Please. It's more fun. So if I'm an enterprise type of uh, software vendor, like, you know, people are paying me 100K a year, 200K a year, or like it's, it's a tens of thousands of dollars at least a year for, for my solution. Yes. And I have customers all over the globe, and I've been depending on an infrastructure that's somehow decentralized, or if you may. How can I still do what you guys did? Oh, 100%. That, that's, I mean, we're doing the same thing in many ways. We have uh, over 100,000 customers in 100 and, what is it, 79 countries. There's two countries in the world, I believe, that we don't have customers in. One is North Korea, and I forget what the other one is. Um, so we have customers all over the world. And do you know what? This is, again, part of this cloud nonsense. Oh, do you know what? If you want to be global, if you want to be, you can only do it if you have the cloud. What are you talking about? You still have to pick a region. Yeah. If whatever you're in, I mean, I was talking about US East 1, which was the original region, very popular, right? Right. Most businesses, they're not multiple distributed databases, uh, what's called master 
huge master synchronization. They're not running at the scale of Facebook. No. They're not operating in that sense. They have one or two primary regions, and then they use things like CDNs to accelerate their worldwide distribution of assets and so forth. All those tools are exactly the same. And this is why I'm so adamant. Yeah, but one thing here that, that is hard is that, you know, if I want to have something that is accessible around the world, I know these cloud vendors, but you're talking about that there are these other, you know, data centers, you can have your hardware and so there. But how do I know who to go to? I mean, who, who are you going to call? I mean, I don't know anything about this. And, and I thought like, man, I got to go back and call Rackspace. <laughs> we were actually on Rackspace back in 2008. They're a little different. They're sort of managed hosting where um, you often usually do lease the hardware from them. You don't actually buy the hardware. Um, there's a bunch of these other services. We use hardware straight from Dell. So we buy directly from Dell and we never see the hardware. This is the other misconception with this out of cloud stuff. People think like boxes arrive to my living room and I'm then plucking Ethernet cables in and shoving it in the basement <laughs> or something. Uh, what are you talking about? A pallet? Good old days. Yeah, exactly. Good old days. I mean, I actually have some nostalgia for that, but that's not what we're doing. We're sending a pallet of servers to a data center that we have an agreement with. We have one in Virginia and we have one in Chicago. So we're geographic distributed in case anything happens. And then we have what's called a white glove service. And this is perhaps the magic that people don't realize. There's a whole ecosystem of companies that will um, make a service arrangement with you. And when something like a pallet of service arrive to the data center we have, they have people working at that data center for multiple companies. They show up in many ways, just like the cloud do, right? Like uh, Amazon, occasionally you have to order new servers, the servers around to the data center. There's someone there to unpack the box, rack the box, plug in cable and ethernet. Those services can be bought for money. We use someone called Deft. How do you find reliable partners uh, for data centers? I mean, if I would have do this today with, with a SaaS company like Imaginary, I wouldn't know who to contact and I wouldn't okay, know. Okay, well, let me, let me give you an easy one okay. because I can vouch for them personally. <laughs> Call Deft, D-E-F-T. D-E-F-T, Deft, they have um, relationships and um People on the ground in the two data centers we use in the U.S., we're actually about to open a – well, not open. This is the – we sometimes get confused about these words. I was about to say we're about to open a data center. We're not opening anything soon. We're about to move in to a data center in Amsterdam because we want to accelerate some things in for people in Europe. Um, we're using DEF for that as well. There's a ton of these services. It is much the same as like how do you validate your SaaS enterprise solutions? Mm. Well, you look at the options. You look at their site. You look at some referrals. You do – it's the normal due diligence process. There's nothing – exotic here. And I think you can rest assured knowing this is how the entire internet operated like five minutes ago. Mm. The cloud is a very recent invention in the history of the internet. We've been doing this stuff since what, at least 94, 95, right? And all the way up until like 2015, 2014, that was the preferred predominant way of doing things. And then after 14, 15, it shifted over and it became cloud first that that was when most people went to. But like all these companies still exist. There's like literally billions of dollars invested into state-of-the-art data centers, uh, people who service them. And in many ways, there are far more options. This is the irony of the cloud. With the cloud, you have like three choices. You can go with Google, Amazon, or Microsoft. And then there's some far distant number four and number five, right? Three options suck. That's not a good market. You should have a hundred options. You should have a thousand options, right? When you have three options and the options aren't even that optional, this is the other uh, lie, I'll go outright and say it, of the cloud, is that you're, you can migrate. No, you can't. If you're an AWS, you can't just 
flip a switch and go to Google. So you know, don't even get to play them off against each other. You have so much lock-in on these cloud platforms that for a lot of companies, it's actually quite difficult to move from Amazon to Google. So in most cases, you don't even have choice. You're dealing with a de facto monopoly vendor, which is why the prices are ridiculous. But if it's that difficult to move from the established ones, it, would it not mean that it's also difficult to move to a non-established one the way you guys did? It's the same difficulty. Yeah. And the difficulty, when I say it, it's really difficult. I mean, you can't just change two lines of code and redeploy. Right. We spent six months moving out seven services, right? And you know what? That's a serious investment. And I would not be doing that unless there was a payoff. Thankfully, there is. We're going to save $7 million over five years. That's an enormous payoff that totally validates spending six months making the change, but it would not validate. If I'm just moving from Amazon to Google and I'm going to save, what, 5%, right. I'd go like, that's not going to be worth it. That's way too much effort for way too small of a payoff. But when you're moving out of the cloud, the payoff is in a completely different atmosphere and thus the equation adds up. So let, let's play with the thought and idea a little bit here that there's a bunch of CTOs listening to this here. You probably have seen this in real life you know, after your post. And then they come up to you and be like, geez, I've been thinking the same things. Great that somebody finally said it. But I'm thinking like, if I'm a CTO and I bring this to my CEO, I think there's a risk that she or he will tell me like, you've lost your mind. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, how do I prepare myself to bring this topic up to the surface for a, like a proper debate and discussion? Like, what? Do, how do I do that? Yeah, so this is where timing is so important. If you had brought this to the CEO all the way up until I think uh, spring of 21, which was when we had the high time in valuation for SaaS companies, they would have said, what a waste of time. Who cares about saving money? We're not about saving money. Spend. Spend more on cloud. Spend double on cloud. I don't care. We have unlimited funds coming in. It doesn't cost us anything. We have investors lining up out the door. They don't give a hoot about cost savings. They just want multiples. It's multiple of top line. No one gives a damn about the bottom line. Have you heard any um, CEO talk like that recently? Not too many. No. None. <laughs> None, because the market has completely changed. SaaS valuations in the U.S. has collapsed 80 to 90% for unprofitable SaaS, 50% at least for profitable SaaS. The entire market has shifted. And I think this is why this lit such a firestorm when I posted about it, because I posted about it early this year where we were already in a free fall, right? right. And companies are suddenly having to look like, um, maybe it's actually the other way around. The CEO coming to the CTO or the CFO coming to the CEO. Hey, do you know where we can find $5 million? We really need to find $5 million in operations. Can you find that? And if you are a CTO who's prepared for this discussion and you know about Cloud Exit, you might very well go like, do you know what? I have a proposal. I don't think it's the other way. I mean, there's not a lot of CTOs, at least at larger companies, who actually necessarily, I was going to say, care about the bottom line. It's not their primary responsibility. Let's say it like that, right? Right. The reason I care, I am both the CTO, but I also own the goddamn business. So if we say $5 million over, um, or $7 million over five years, I got a whole lot more money to me left over at the end of the day that I can kick out and go racing with. Yeah. So <laughs> the money, like the dollars matter to me in a way that perhaps they don't matter so much to other CTOs, which is why I think this conversation is not going to come from the CTO. It's going to come from the CFO. Uh -huh. It's going to come from the CEO. All right. People looking at their runway and saying, do you know what? We can't raise any money anymore because our valuation is down by 80%. Um, we have to make the money we have last. 
We have to become a profitable company. How do you become a profitable company? Well, you can either sell a lot more stuff or you can lower your expenses. Yeah. Right now, it's not that easy to sell a lot more stuff in, in SaaS. I don't know if you've looked at all the benchmarks. You probably have. <laughs> like, people are not growing the way they were growing during the pandemic. Mm. Like, it is actually quite hard just even to keep flat let alone post those 40% year-over-year growth rates, right? So the easiest way in my optics to improve your financial status is to work on those costs. And most companies, they have cost, most SaaS companies that go, number one, people, that's your payroll. Number two, your cloud. Literally number two. And in some companies, cloud is even number one. Yeah. Of course, you got to start working on that. So, I mean, you're talking a lot about cost savings here. And- You've actually been controversial at least one more time this year. And I don't know if this benefits you as a a SaaS founder or so, but uh, I know that you have this, um, I don't know if it's um, initiative, but once you're talking about that the price model of SaaS must or maybe should change and uh, that SaaS might be dead as we know it. So could you elaborate a little bit on that? First of all, I owe my entire fortune to SaaS. We have a very profitable portfolio of SaaS products. I don't hate SaaS. I love SaaS for certain types of applications. I think SaaS is ridiculous for another type of applications. Um, the one I like to pick on is Slack. And the reason I pick on Slack is because, first of all, they have a good product. That's important to realize. This is not because there's a shit product out here. They have a good product that a lot of people like that is absolutely redonkulously expensive for large corporations to buy. Mm -hmm. There are corporations sending tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to Slack for a chat tool. Now, it's a good chat tool, but it's a chat tool. It doesn't have the gravity of other types of SaaS applications that are perhaps much harder to run yourself. A chat tool to me is an example of something that should not cost $10,000 a month, even if you have 500 people using it. It's just ridiculous. And not only is it ridiculous, and I don't even care whether it's ridiculous, it's an opportunity. And I think when you see market disconnects like that, when you have mm, sort of questionable value being sold at extreme luxury prices, Someone is going to go in there and go like, you know what? Um, we could sell that same product for a tenth the price, a hundredth of the price, a thousandth of the price and still make money. That is not a long-term stable operation. I think a lot of SaaS is in this category. Mm. They're selling very expensive tools where the customers don't actually appreciate that excess value. Yeah. Now, the reason I pick on Slack is that there was just a recent update to Slack. What was the universal reception to the change in the Slack UI? At least from I saw. Everyone fucking hated it. <laughs> they hated the update yeah. to, to the Slack UI. What they wanted most of all was for Slack to never change. Yeah. Do you know what that's resembling of? Is my printer. I don't want my printer to change. I don't want my printer to get a firmware update. I don't ever want to fucking touch my printer. I want to say print and then paper comes out. I don't care how it does it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and we use Slack for the community, right? Uh, but we can't pay for it because we have thousands of members. And if we're going to pay those prices, and we know it's not a community tool. It's for like uh, internal purposes, but it's ridiculously expensive. We would go out of business if we started to pay for Slack. So are you advocating for if... Am I hearing this right? So would you suggest then that there is like a Slack competitor, if you may, somebody new that comes in and goes back to the old times and it's like, 
you pay me once and then you run it yourself and the tool is yours yes. forever yes. so what i'm saying is it is a very unnatural it is ahistorical that all software these days are being sold as services lots of software make perfect sense as products products are things you buy once and then you own and it doesn't work for everything. Hey.com is a great example, right? It's quite hard to run your own email, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't so. But um, if you just set up your own email box tomorrow in your closet and you try to send email, it's probably not going to make it to Gmail because you have to have extremely high reputation for your IP addresses. There are all these barriers of entrance that means that something like email makes for a poor product and a great service. There's a whole gray area of things that don't, fall along those merits. Why would it? Why would it be that all software made perfect sense as services? Now, from an operational perspective, this is true as well. We sell Basecamp. This is where we made most of our um, business over the years. It's great, but it's also a really large operation. We have 10 operations people. We have 20 customer support people. We have a huge part of the organization is dedicated to the service part of that business. Mm. Now, I have in my mind um, id Software. In 1997, I think, or whatever it was, they released Quake. Quake was sold as shareware. id Software was seven people at the time. They literally sold millions of copies and I think hundreds of millions in revenues. How could seven people service millions of customers? You can't do that with a service outside of the extreme outliers of something like WhatsApp. Um, most services require a large team to operate it. That's literally what service means. I have to provide service to you on an ongoing basis. That's what you pay me for, right? So there's an economic model there that makes sense for some types of software, but is utterly disproportionate for other types of software. And I am really curious to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Do you have more examples in Slack? I mean, you mentioned Slack. Any other products that you want to take a patch on? Oh, I would. So, I mean, you could even you could you could talk about Basecamp. I'm sure there's a version of Basecamp that was sold as a as a product, not a service. I'm sure there's a version of Trello. I'm sure there's a version of Asana. I'm sure there's a version of everything, almost except for a small category of things where um, it's just too complicated to run. Email is an example of something that's too complicated to run. Mm. I don't know. This is also what's exciting about it, right? Like, I don't know where the line goes. I don't know where customers feel like where the line goes. There may very well be customers like, yeah, I don't care. I'm happy paying $50,000 a month for a chat tool, even if there's one available for a one-time price of $1,000 maybe, right? I think it's also a little bit political because that's how you know spending budgets are designed internally yes. a little bit. Like, it's, it's, easy, it's easier to get through a recurring type of expense rather than saying to somebody like, hey, we're going to have to invest 100000 in this right now. Now, first of all, I'd say though, with, on the product space, you're not talking about hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So this is the other thing. Whenever there is an opportunity for orders of magnitude difference in price, there's Greenfield, right? There's uh, clearly customers who would respond to something that's an order or several orders of magnitude cheaper. We're not talking, again, it's like the cloud exit story. Cloud provider changes don't make sense because you're not going to you're not going to go through all that work to save 5%, right? Right. You will go through we went through all that work to save 7 million. That's a completely different number. If you're talking about 7 million, okay, that's worth some effort. If you're looking at a changing from a service to a product, if it's two orders of magnitude, maybe that makes sense. And remember, it's not it's never about one tool. I, I forget what, where I saw the stat, but like the average mid-size business today has something like 40 SaaS subscriptions. Yeah. 
You're like, you add that stuff up. How much are you spending per employee on a monthly basis on the SaaS tools that you use? And I think most CFOs um, would cover their eyes, <laughs> right? Like it is catastrophic in some cases how much money is being blown on that. And if there's an opportunity, this is this is the thing. It hasn't existed. There hasn't been an ecosystem of products for these kind of uh, software solutions. So there has been no choice. So people thought this is what I had to do. I think things are going to change dramatically. I mean, that's at least our pitch. Once.com is our attempt at doing this. We're going to try with a handful of products to do it. Right. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're early. We've been early before. We made Slack about 10 years before Slack. We had something called Campfire in 2005, which was essentially Slack. It was just too early. Right. So much of success in market comes with timing. So, so is that your thing, that you you would like to disrupt uh, a number of SaaS services yes. with, with a yes. your product that yes. you pay for once, and you're going to develop those products? That, that's the whole thing. That, that's exactly right. You heard, you heard it first here. I'm intellectually curious about what happens when you introduce generics. I look at a little bit like drug development. So on, in drug development, you have a patent that lasts, what is it, 19 years, right? In those 19 years, you have excess pro uh, profits, right? You can just charge whatever you want if you have a, an important drug. Then the patent go, or the drug goes off patent and like the world actually requires to be well-functioning that generics show up and say, okay, well, we can make that same chemical compound for like one hundredth of the price. If you look at all the medical costs in the Nordics, how can the Nordics afford to have um, the healthcare system that they do? In part because of generics. If they had to pay brand name drug prices for everything and there was no generic competition to push it down, we couldn't have the welfare state in the Nordics that we do. So I think there's just something for the belt functioning of economies and the world that we need to push down price where there is an excess. And I look at a lot of these SaaS tools and go like, do you know what? That's an absurd excess. In much the same way I looked at the cloud and went, why are we funding all of Amazon's profits as a company? All of Amazon's profits come from AWS. Why? Because AWS has 40% margins. That's absurd. Dell and HP and the others, they have single digit margins. And here you go, Amazon has 40% while they're expanding massively with all these data centers. Uh, that means that the gross margins are probably like 80 or 90%. That's a market failure. I'm a huge fan of capitalism, and the main function of capitalism is competition. That's what makes capitalism work on the long term and the long scale. So once.com is our attempt to inject a bit of capitalism into SaaS uh, status quo. This has been mind-blowing, very exciting. <laughs> I'm going to go and think about this the rest of the day here. So uh, what I've learned is that potentially the way we run software will change, the way we price for software or charge for software will potentially change or there will be at least alternatives. Do you have a third final big disruptor that you want to spill the beans on here? Like the first drop ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just say that like these things that happen, do you know what? They look impossible until they're done. When, uh, when the iPhone was first introduced, do you know who laughed the hardest? The executives at BlackBerry and the uh, people working on Microsoft Mobile. Yeah. They thought, this is hilarious. Well, who, no one's going to buy this device. It's too expensive. It doesn't have a physical keyboard. And do you know what? Their financial results proved them right, right up until it didn't. Mm. Right? It was like, this is great. This is great. This is great. Holy <laughs> shit! We're dead. <laughs> That's how innovation sometimes happen. And I think if I was, if I was a SaaS business, I would, Look at that parallel and go like, you know what? There's no guarantee that that's what's going to happen. There's been a, everything was going to be the metaverse. No, it wasn't. Like, 
uh, what uh, Facebook wasted forty billion dollars on the metaverse or something like that. It fucking didn't happen. It may happen one day. It wasn't a BlackBerry event, right? right. But do you know what? You would be prudent to think about the tail risks. This is one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of Nassim Taleb. He has a great book called Black Swan, where he talks about like anything that's worth planning or the only thing worth planning for really is black swan events. What do you do? How are you positioned for things like a blackberryization of SaaS? It would be foolish to think that this pricing model, this distribution model, SaaS, which has only existed in at scale for like 15 years, is going to last forever. What the fuck lasts forever? <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. Um, so get ready for, for a BlackBerry moment and just be happy if it doesn't happen or be happy if it does happen, right? Like part of this, I think the fun of being in software is that things do change. They're not exactly the same as they were 20 years ago. A lot of things are the same, but many important things are not. And that's what makes it interesting. I wouldn't want to work in this damn business for another 40 years if everything we were going to do until the end of time was just selling another iterative upgrade of a B2B SaaS tool. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I might just jump into the oh, casket yeah, now just... and burn me 10 feet underground. That just sounds boring. And I say that as someone who's enjoyed the ride tremendously, but I want a new ride. I want new things. I want different things. Like we should all be so fortunate to to experience a new world a different world v variety is the spice of life somebody told me once you know and, and and speaking about variety this has been like i said super inspiring and so on and you already mentioned a few once you're like so where do you draw inspiration from like is, is there a person is there a, i don't know driving cars like if there would be somebody else we would get on the on the podcast here for you would say like, I'm going to listen to that podcast because she or he inspires me. Who would that be? So do you know what's funny is for the longest time, I was bored out of my mind with business writers. I have not read a lot of business books. I really don't care for business books. The best business books I've read in the last 20 years is the biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson that just came out about a month ago. That business book blew my mind. I enjoy sort of provoking people and making them see things from a different angle. Holy shit, is Elon Musk doing that at 500 orders of magnitude greater than anything I could even attempt to endeavor, right? Like I work in software, B2B software, where the worst thing that kind of happens is that like a customer is going to scream at us because we're down. He works at fucking firing rockets to the moon or Mars or wherever, <laughs> or, or electric cars that have to drive themselves, like the highest level of human criticality possible, right? <laughs> and he's doing it with a very different approach to business. Um, I tweeted the um, the Musk algorithm recently, which has about five or seven steps on it, where he just breaks down business problems and how you diagnose it. And I thought like, you know what? This is fucking profound yeah. in a way that I have not read in a business book in literally 20 years. The last time I had this experience was reading uh, Maverick uh, by Ricardo Semler in 2001. This was one of the primary inspirations for 37 Sickles, how we came to be. This was another guy running an industrial company making um, maritime pumps in Brazil with like 7,000 employees and running a radical company that just absolutely blew my mind. The Elon Musk biography is the sort of like the second version of that for me. I understand fully that he is one of the most polarizing people who currently walk on earth, but you are an utter fool if you let your perceptions of politics or his 
juvenile behavior prevent you from learning the deep business secrets that that man seems to hold? I've tried to persuade my wife that we should have sort of a painting of him, uh, <laughs> sort of in the living room or so, but uh, I don't know why, but she, 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 does, she doesn't approve of it. But no, he's a very polarizing character. No, but maybe here in, in my room where we record uh, the podcast <laughs> and everything, maybe I could have something here on the wall, at least to inspire me. I mean, the, the Black Widow, the Black Widow, is, is, it's good. It's a good replacement for that. Yeah, Scarlett has her place as well. Th- this was amazing. David, thank you so much for joining the show. And uh, if people want to get hold of you, where do they find you? Is it LinkedIn? Is that the easiest? Uh, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, also, dhh.dk has links to everything. LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, um, the books. We didn't talk about those. I've written about four books. There's a bunch of places where you can find more of these kinds of thoughts that we've been talking about. And um, yeah, dhh.dk. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining the show and we'll see you around. All right. Thanks so much for having me. So Daniel, what's your takeaway from this episode today? You know what? This is a first for me. I've never sweat by just <laughs> listening to somebody. I'm all sweating here and exciting. It's like this was, uh, it had everything. Like it, it was fast. It was fun. There was knowledge drops. Like uh, my mind is, is expanded and I'm just a commercial guy. Um, I, I love what he said there that, you know, uh, some of the things that we see as rules today as you know pure facts this is how it is it's running the cloud we charge for things in a certain way or whatever it is those are rules that are there to be challenged will change some days you know we've seen these types of leaps back in the days i have no idea if david is is right or wrong here like uh, i don't want to even speculate but the fact that he's thinking about some of these things and he said something along the lines like you got to prepare for the unprepared a little bit. Yeah. I think not enough of us think those along those lines or we don't spend enough time thinking along those lines. So I, I thought that was really cool and inspiring to listen into. Yeah, he's probably a bit ahead. I mean, I think there is still a lot of companies that are in their early phases of sort of working with the cloud and working with SaaS. But I mean, to every action, there is a reaction. <laughs> what do you say? Uh, so... Uh, I mean, this focus on the big cloud giants, uh, I mean, they, they are, will be challenged in, in some way. And uh, it might be that people are starting running their own service. It might be that there are some other provider that comes up with other solutions. So, I mean, the one who live will see. Yeah. But, um, I mean, besides that, just loving the energy. And I think we, we felt that, you know, Similar to what he felt when he talked about Elon Musk, that's what we felt when we heard him <laughs> speak here. So. Definitely, and, and hey, hey, David was super cool here. Like, he's a very busy guy, but it, like, uh, if you guys are listening to this and you feel like, holy smokes, I want to know more about this, you know, send us your question. Put it in an email. Uh, David will 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 send it over to David. We'll see what I can do with it. We'll see what, what type of other forum we can set up here. But if you have other things you want his opinion on just send us an email and we'll see what we can do about it thomas where did they send it to contact at sassias.com yeah that's the place it's a magical email address yeah um speaking about uh interacting with each other uh hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode give us a five-star rating in whatever player you're you're using to listen into this and again it's worth mentioning that at the end of the year you guys know the drill now if you're a VP level or CEO, now is the time to send in your application before we start with the 
kickoff sessions 25th of January, right? Absolutely. And for everyone working in B2B SaaS, there's actually a few meetups coming up as well. So already next week in Copenhagen on the 14th, we meet up at Cookie Information for an after work at five o'clock. And then in Stockholm, the 28th at my news desk, we have a similar exercise. So um, you can look, um, I think we... We have some information on, on the website or in the newsletter and so on, so you can get your hands on that. I think we might need to put up a, a small article on it we'll make on it the website so people don't visit. But uh, anyway, we will come back very soon again with a new episode of the Sassiest Podcast. And uh, let us know if you have any ideas on guests or topics that you would like us to cover. And with that, thank you so much for listening and see you around. Take care.